been a preacher now for 30 years. And I can tell you, and Edwin can tell you, that uh, in, within the brotherhood there is a fraternity uh, among preachers. That nobody loves and understands and gets preachers like preachers. And as I think about, and that may say more than, than it's, it should, but uh, preachers are a unique breed. There's no doubt about that. When I think about uh, Edwin and the time that we have been here, there's just something about the nature of a relationship. Uh, Edwin has I already had a respect and had known about his work for so many years, uh, but it did not know Edwin very closely until I came here. And there's something about working together day after day, week after week. I don't know how many hours that we have been uh, in discussion uh, in the couple of years, but you talk about a lot of things. And I can tell you this about Edwin. Edwin loves the church. He loves this congregation. He has a, a track record of being a church builder. You know, the thing I said this morning about how uh, Christ is very protective of his bride and he wants that bride to be healthy and strong. I think that Edwin understands that far more than I do. Uh, and uh, I'm grateful uh, for uh, what he has, has taught me. In that fraternity, I also, though I don't know him as well as I know Edwin, have come to know uh, Hiram. And I know one of his elders, have known one of his elders for far longer, a man by the name of Brian Kenyon. And Brian Kenyon reached out to me and said two things about Hiram. He said, with regard to Hiram, he said, I heard him two or three times before I drew the conclusion, he's going to be the next Hiram Kemp. And what he meant by that is, you can't really draw a comparison because he is, he is that gifted. He is that, but the second thing that Brian said about him, I found very encouraging. He says he's pretty good when it comes to that, but it's Monday through Saturday. He is a man who serves and ministers in a way like I've not seen. I, I tell you this, with regard to uh, preachers, uh, there aren't many of us who have ever served as an elder. I'm, I'm 51 years old. And as a result of that, I have three grown sons. And I suppose that I meet the qualifications, though I do not desire the work. I've never had to make the decisions and to face the pressures and the accountability that an elder does. I think there are a couple of you in the room who have served in that capacity. The majority of us have not. And I suppose that on the other side of the door of that service, that role, there's an experience that those who have never served in that role have in the wake of decisions that are made. I want to encourage you about, and I know this is not my preaching style and this is not even part of the sermon, so this is, I'm throwing this in for free. If you'll turn with me to a couple of passages for us to keep in mind in the days and the weeks to come, in a time of change and transition, a time in which God has constructed His bride to serve and function in a given way. It's His house, His rules. And so we're going to talk about the Bible tonight anyway and how we can take it seriously. So I want us to take seriously these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. 
We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. If you'll also turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Reading from the English Standard Version. I believe that one of the things that we do as we anticipate the arrival of Hiram and Brittany who accepted a job at a place they've never been, or they've never visited, never even been to Bowling Green from what I know, what faith that that took on, that, on their part. Let's be deeply and daily engaged in prayer. For our dear friends, the Jones, our dear elders, and for the Kemp's, and for the growth and the future of this church. As we strive to do God's will, to His glory, let's make sure that our eyes are ever on the health and the strength of the bride of Christ. Now, the sermon part. (laughs) You know that speaking against and discrediting the Word of God preceded actually the presence of sin in this world. And if you caught that, you know probably where I'm going. Where I'm going is Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent, who was more crafty than all the beasts of the field, came to the woman and said, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, We may eat of the trees that are in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto her, You will not surely die. But God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be as God, knowing good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 5. Now, we would think that this is just an innocent, incidental conversation if it were not for Moses' prefatory remarks where he says that he's this crafty, subtle creature. And perhaps he sets... Eve at ease as he talks with her and has conversation and in doing so he begins to question the word of God. You'll notice that he does not try to discredit or disprove the existence of God. There's no way that he could have had success with that tactic. They had a relationship with God already. He did not try to say that God had not spoken to her and to Adam because they both knew that he had But what they did instead, or he did instead, was he tried to undermine God's motivation. Tried to besmirch it and to discredit it. And Eve heard, she believed, and she obeyed a lie. And as a result of this, she and her husband who went along with her were condemned in sin. And I would submit to you that in the 6,000 years that have followed, there have been quite a few who have walked in the footsteps or slithered behind the serpent in doing what he has done in trying to discredit the Bible. And as you examine this, what you'll come to find is that not everybody who is trying to tell us that we should not take the Bible seriously, not all of them are atheists. Not all of them are skeptics and secular. You realize there's quite a movement in the religious world to try to undermine the credibility of the Bible. 
just one example, is a man by the name of Alexander Barron. It doesn't matter what denomination he's a part of. What he says is believed by folks in a great many denominations and even among some who claim to be part of the New Testament church. But his article was published in the Huffington Post, a national publication, and got wide readership. In that, he talks about the Bible and his understanding of the Bible. He said that the Bible is a collection of writings by several men who thought that they were led by God to discern his teachings. And so each of them had their unique take on the gospel of Jesus. And this led uh, a large number of high-ranking priests to decide this in councils. So that's his explanation about the Bible. But as he talks about the, about the God of the Bible, he says God is all-powerful. He is all-loving. Jesus of Nazareth is his son. But he does not believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God. Now, as he talks about his ministry, he is a full-time preacher in his denomination. He says, uh, with regard to that, that uh, he believes that one experiences God today. And through their experience, they come to discern Good and evil, right and wrong, rather than getting that from a book. There's a man by the name of Joseph Connor, who represents the American Humanist Association, and he gives us uh, a the take of the secular uh, skeptic, I think, in a very good way. The American Humanist Association, their tagline is, Good Without God. And he says, humanists do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. They believe that it was written by ignorant men in a cruel and superstitious age. And that it was completely without divine help. And because of this, and because it was written by superstitious people, it is full of many errors and harmful teachings. It's not my purpose tonight to dig into their claims and to try to show you why I think their claims are very empty. But we might ask the secular, the religious skeptic like Alexander Barron, uh, so how is it that you get your subject matter and your sermon material for the lessons that you present? By what authority do you present the material that you do? What he is saying to us is that instead of going to a book, a collection of writings, that he experiences God. And based on his personal experience, he's going to tell you about eternal matters. What about Mr. About his uh, belief that we don't need the Bible to give us right and wrong and good and evil? Well, my question to him would be, who is it that determines what is right and wrong or good and evil? And who and how do you arbitrate when there's disagreement among humans about what's right and wrong and good and evil? But instead of going down that road, what I want us to do is engage in a proof or at least a defense of the idea that you tonight can take the Bible seriously. You can take it seriously. But there's going to be at least three things that you have got to do if you are going to take the Bible seriously. And let's look at them and the lesson will be yours. Number one, to take the Bible seriously, you must believe in a personal God who is able and willing to communicate to man. As we dig into the debate about whether this is the book that came from God, we've got to dig into the debate about whether or not God exists. 
In the quarter that was just uh, completed, we, Charlie and I taught about the apologetics that are necessary in our generation before you can get to a Bible study with a lot of people. You know, we owe a great debt of thanks to organizations, institutions like Apologetics Press and Focus uh, Press and the Warren Apologetics that uh, Bart Warren is the, the uh, chairman of uh, over here in Glasgow. So many other different places in our brotherhood that have given us an appreciation for how we can articulate a defense of God's existence. Even in the broader religious world, there have been many who have given great contributions that help us to understand how simple the choice is of God or no God. Some arguments that we're able to have in our possession that can help us to believe in the existence of a personal God. There's the moral argument. The moral argument says that there are objective morals that exist and that people of every generation and every place And in every time, believe that these morals exist, that they're objective. And the one who would be the skeptic or the atheist has one of two choices. He would have to say that there is no objective standard of morality and that human beings decide and live with the Hitler-like consequences of that. Or would have to say that objective morality exists, which requires a higher law which requires a being that is hired to distribute those laws. And if there is an objective higher law, then there has to be a place because the, uh, the effect of the first premise is there's a, uh, ultimately no meaning to life. If there's no objective morality, there is no stated right or wrong that's true for everybody of all places and all times, then really what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? It's whatever I think it is and whatever I can get away with and whatever I can do. But if there is objective morality, then how do I know where to find the meaning of life? How do I have the direct, specific guidance? So the moral argument helps us. There's also the intuitional argument. And the intuitional argument says that humanity as a whole, in civilizations all over the world, in every generation, has an innate desire to worship. Where does that come from? How does that develop? If atheism and godlessness is true, how is that not weeded out in the process of evolution early on? It's not efficient because it requires a lot of time and it requires a lot of money. And animals did not evolve this inclination to worship. Why did human beings evolve that tendency? Richard Dawkins, by the way, no friend of the Bible at all, as he addresses this idea, he says, if it is false, why is religion ubiquitous? In other words, omnipresent. Because it is not efficient in the randomness of evolution. Now, he's not telling us to believe in God and believe in worship, but he's saying evolution has no explanation for that. Atheism has no explanation for that. Then there's the teleological argument for the existence of God. When scientists look and they see complexity and they see thought and they see planning and they see intention, they are seeing evidence of design. If there is design, there must be a designer. When you begin to think about the various arguments that can be made, there's the aesthetic argument. And that is that there is built within human beings this this understanding or, or feeling, sentient, that there's beauty. Evolution cannot explain the why of beauty in its randomness. Why is there beauty that has just come about? And also the how of beauty. 
How is there beauty when there once was not beauty? Evolution has no explanation for that. A godless system doesn't explain that for us. And then there's the cosmological argument. The universe is in effect. And to be in effect, there must be a greater and adequate cause, and that cause is God. Now, the Bible has said that in so many words. In Acts chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, Paul is preaching. And because he's preaching to the folks at Lystra, they're not necessarily going to be looking for book, chapter, and verse. And so as he appeals to them at that point in their understanding of God, he says that God in times past has left the nations to go their own way, but he did not leave himself without witness. In Acts 17, 25, and 26, Paul is up on Mars Hill with the men of Athens, and they're the same kind of people. They don't come from a God worldview. And so he says that of one man, this God, this unknown God that they weren't worshiping, they believed every, God was in everything, was everything, they had some kind of tribute to every kind of God. And he says, this unknown God that I declare unto you, let me tell you about him, of one man, he made all nations of mankind to dwell on the face of the earth. He determined their appointed seasons and the bounds of their habitation, if happily they might seek after him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and verse 20, you have the Apostle Paul talking about how God from the very beginning through these invisible attributes, His eternal power and His divine nature, He has given us evidence. It's evident to us that He exists. And I believe, though He doesn't lay it out like modern apologists have done so, He's talking about the various arguments. And if there is a personal God and so many ways we can show that He exists... Don't you think that a personal God would want us to know what's on his mind? And you think about how human beings are. Did you know that today there are 7,139 living languages? 4,065 of those have been written down. But here's what happens when you don't write, and if you ever search this, please not now, but later on Google, you know, languages that are scarce, extinct, going out, you know. There's a reason why that languages cease to exist, that are lost tongues to us. When they're only spoken and they're not written, it isolates the speakers. And not only that, that language begins to erode in a culture where there's not some way to record it, to preserve it. But God has made us in such a way that we are communicators, that we're linguistic And because we communicate in that way, God communicates to us in a way that we understand. That's the power of a passage like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Notice just a few words real quickly. The word all. Now when the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture... You know what he's talking about, right, in the context. It's the 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5. From a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. He's talking about the Old Testament. That's what was completed. New Testament was still being written. But he says, you, all Scripture, it applies to, in this context, to the Old Testament. But did you know that the Bible also refers to the New Testament as Scripture? Did you know that? 
In First uh, Timothy 5 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul makes a statement. He says, the scriptures say that the laborer is worthy of his hire or his wages. Now that principle is found in the Pentateuch. But you will not go to the Old Testament and find that passage cited or that, that Paul is drawing from Leviticus or Numbers. You know where he's getting that from? Luke 10 and verse 7. Matthew 10 and verse 10. Look at it and you'll see that's what Matthew said and what Luke says. And what does Paul say about Luke's writings and Matthew's writings? The Scripture. How about this? Peter, 2 Peter 3. He's talking about the second coming and how people have misunderstood that. And in the midst of that, he's talking about how there are those that are unlearned and they're unstable. They take the Scriptures and they twist them and they distort them to their own destruction. But here's what he says. As also our dear beloved brother Paul says in all his writings, which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable twist as they do the rest of the scriptures to their destruction. The technical term is the Pauline corpus. All that means is the letters, the writings of Paul, 13 books of your New Testament. Peter in one stroke of the pen says scripture. And so as we look at the New Testament, we see Scripture. So Paul says all. God's communicating to us through the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. All Scripture. Greek word is written document. God's, the power of Scripture is in the written word and not in the style and the expression of the writers. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired There's power in it. It's what Jesus is saying to the devil in Matthew 4, verse 4, when he quotes the scripture, by the way, and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and it's profitable. You see, this God who made us has given us a word. You think about our first point. How do you take the Bible seriously? You've got to believe in a personal God who is able and willing to communicate because he loves us. He wants to give us the very best life possible. And the way He does that is He has given us Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 says that the prophecy of old time did not come by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So how would Peter describe that word? He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. The Word of God that lives and abides forever. For all flesh is grass, and the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower there falls away. But the one that does the will of the Lord abides forever. I want to suggest to you tonight, you can have confidence, you can take the Bible seriously, if you believe in a personal God, and we try to establish that, who is able and willing to communicate His will. Number two, you can take the Bible seriously tonight. If you believe in divine omnipotence, if you believe in an all-powerful God, if you can believe from just the things we mentioned a moment ago that God exists and has made all of this to happen, that He has the power and that He's willing to use the very power that has created us and that sustains us to communicate a word to us that's for all people of all languages in every place, That it's as relevant in the 21st century as it was when it was written. That's his power. But you know, how do you you really get your, your grasp on that? 
when we talk about the transcendency of God, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. If you'll allow me for a couple of minutes to look at just one of them. It's one that we looked at a couple of years ago in a sermon not long after I got here, Isaiah chapter 40. When you think about the power of God, there's at least three things to keep in mind. Isaiah brings it to our attention that, first of all, this God of all power has infinite presence. If we want to know about the ability of the God to give us a word that we can take seriously, let's think about how wide His presence extends, how omnipresent that He is. Isaiah just points to some things that we know all around us are true to help us to appreciate His power. And if you'll remember, I may have given this statistic before, there are 236 million trillion gallons of water in this world. 97% of that water is salt water. It is not potable. We can't drink it. And two-thirds of the water that is fresh is locked up in ice caps and glaciers. But with that 1%, he sustains life for 7.8 billion people on this earth. And the water that we flush in our toilets, we could drink and survive. God, with that 1%, takes care of all of us. And Isaiah says that he holds that 1% and the other 99% in the hollow of his hand. God has this kind of power, this kind of presence... But then you think about how big our universe is. 92 billion light years in diameter. It's hard for us to fathom a number that big, how big the universe is. When you think about how fast that the speed of light is, 186,000 miles per second, and how long it would take for light to travel, 92 billion years. That's what scientists tell us. Isaiah tells us that God looks over that as a man looks at that point from the end of his hand to the top of his shoulder, a span. That's how he looks at this universe. This planet weighs 6.6 sextillion metric tons. It's the densest planet in the solar system. We can't even fathom a number that big. But the Bible says that God looks at that and God sees that and He knows every mountain and every hill. He knows the weight of it. You know, they think about erosion. The weight's changing all the time. God keeps up with that. He knows all that while He watches over you and me. God of infinite presence. So Jeremiah says, God says in Jeremiah, Am I not a God who is near and not a God afar off? Jeremiah 23 and verse 23. Answer that's yes. God is everywhere all at once, including right here. You ever wish to be in two places at once? I have many times. I can't do that. God can. He has infinite presence. He also has infinite knowledge. As you look at Isaiah chapter 40, you see in verse 13 and 14, this, with a series of four rhetorical questions, he doesn't consult man to get his answers. The Spirit doesn't say, hey, can you help me find the answer to this? We have to do that. God doesn't. God knows everything. And when you think about that, what does He know? He knows what you need before you even ask. Matthew 6 and verse 8. He knows what's in every man. John 2 and verse 25. He knows who does not believe in Him and who will betray Him. John 6 and verse 64. He knows what's in your heart. Luke 16, 15. You may fool others. God knows. This God of infinite knowledge is this all-powerful God. But of course, he spends the most of his time talking about the endless power of God. Verse 15 to verse 27, he talks about the fact that God has more power, as he walks through that, than the nations. He has more power than idols. He has more power than earth. He has more power than the rulers of earth. He has more power than the universe. And you can break that down and see its implications. But what we see is... This transcendent God who has that kind of power, 
Is it difficult for him to take 40 men of diverse occupations and backgrounds over 1,500 years? And as the result of the product that we have, we see a unified, harmonious message from Genesis to Revelation. You can take the Bible seriously if you believe in divine omnipotence, an all-powerful God. Only one other thing that you need, I believe, to take the Bible seriously. You can take the Bible seriously if you will take God's the credible God over the faulty assumptions of man. If you can take God's word over man's criticisms. You know, man is, has no shortage of criticisms for the Bible. Is always trying to poke holes through it. But you know, you think about the choice that we have. We can either take the word of a book that has never been more scrutinized, no book has been as scrutinized and as assaulted and as exonerated as the Bible. Or you can take the word of man, who every time he tries to lead other people, without the word of God, he leads to misery and failure and hopelessness. But when humanity has taken this book and has followed it, look at what's happened in the wake of it. Wendell Winkler taught us at Faulkner University, and he had something that he would like to share about the influence of the Bible. What has happened where the Bible has gone? Wherever the Bible has gone, there has been a much more respectful treatment of children. It has eliminated the murder and the mistreatment of children. You think about in Rome where there was no belief in Jehovah God. And not only did they practice abortion, but they practiced infanticide up to a, a pretty incredible age, four, five, six years old. But you think about the fact that here we have a God who has given us some moral values. When we follow what God says, the treatment of children, handicapped children, is elevated. The status of woman is elevated, where the influence of the Bible is gone. Just look at how the Bible describes woman in the context of Scripture. And you look at places where Jehovah God is not revered and how women are treated in those civilizations. It has uh, curtailed murder. It has strengthened the home. It has eliminated slavery. Now, I say if you take the Bible properly, there are principles in the Bible, like practicing the golden rule. There's a reminder from the aged Paul about how a master and a slave treat one another. They're brothers, which eliminates slavery in the ultimate. But it also serves to, has served as the foundation for many of the schools in our country. I don't know about Western Kentucky University, but a lot of the very first schools that were established in this nation were established upon religious principles by religious men for religious purposes. When we think about what happens when God is left out of the picture, we are the product of our choices. And our choices reflect our values, but they also re reflect our destiny. And so the Bible would help us so that we don't have to walk down that road. He says with regard to a nation, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, Proverbs 14, 34. So we think about governments where God has been left out. And it doesn't matter what they are, whether it's communism or if it's fascism, or if it's empires, or unions, or states, or if it's utopias, or anarchies, it doesn't matter. You know, Rome went from being a kingdom to a republic, to an empire, to disintegrating and destruction. Even great systems like our country, a representative democracy, where we have free market capitalism, 
And we're given all these intrinsic liberties in the Constitution. Those cannot endure where God is left out of the picture because of what God says. And He's right. It's not an opinion. It's an observation. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14.12, Proverbs 16.25. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10.23. People have refused. They have resisted. They have defied that century upon century only to find that it's true. When God is left out of the picture, there is no survival of a nation. There's no survival ultimately for an individual. Jesus closes the greatest discourse ever given by talking about those two choices. You can build on the rock of the word or you can build upon the sand of your own thoughts. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. I want to give you the best life you can have now and forever. If we can take God, the credible one, his word, over man's criticisms, where following man always leads to failure, we can take the Bible seriously. You know, we're left with a choice. Everybody believes. Everybody believes in right and wrong. Everybody believes in good and evil. The question is, how do you determine that? How do you make that make consistent sense in a world with so many divergent points of view, feelings and desires and ambitions. Either you choose to take the Bible seriously or you try the alternative. But here's what the Bible says. The word that Christ has spoken, it will judge us in the last day. John 12, 48. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 through Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, John is talking about the things that are now and that will soon come to pass. But starting in Revelation 20, verse 11, until Revelation 22 and verse 21, he's talking about the things that have not yet happened. And at the very beginning of that, he says, And I saw uh, uh, the, heaven and earth fled before him, and I saw the dead, the small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things that were written in the books. The God who wants us to take his word seriously says there is an ultimate accounting. But it's an accounting from a God who is personal, who wants to and wills to and is able to communicate his will. Because he's a God whose power is established. You can see it all around you. He's not far from every one of us. He wants us to feel after him and find him. It's proven over and over again that his word is reliable. And man has proven over and over again that his word is not. Really, to me, it seems like not much of a choice. The choice is, what will we do with that word? Isn't the hard part, especially for a Sunday night crowd, is not whether or not we believe that the Bible is the word of God. It's will we put it in our heart and will we live it in our lives? But it could be that there's someone here tonight who's not yet rendered obedience to this word, but maybe you're ready to. We're going to have a song of invitation to encourage you. If you need to act on your faith in Christ as the Son of God, you're ready to repent of your sins, change your mind that leads to a change of actions, and you're ready to be baptized to have your sins washed away, we would encourage you to do that in the assembly if you wish. If you want to do it privately apart from a crowd, then that's okay too. The, as far as I know, there's the Ethiopian eunuch and there was Philip. may have been one or two others. I don't know, but 
You just need to be baptized to have your sins washed away. But maybe you're a child of God who needs to respond in some way to the invitation of Christ. If you do, we would encourage you right now as together we stand and sing.